Sir Winston Churchill called a very close friend of his who happened to be a minister and asked if he could come and spend some time with him. And of course, the minister agreed. And so the leader of this state went to the minister's study and he spent several hours of one afternoon talking about all of the pressing problems that faced the world at that time and seeking advice from his trusted friend. Well, later on in his memoirs, this minister wrote that in the course of that conversation, he was impressed by the fact that Mr. Churchill repeatedly made the statement that all of the problems that the world has, does, and ever will face will not ultimately be solved until Jesus Christ comes again. Well, it may seem that way, and while I agree that the world is certainly upside down and that man will not enjoy the true paradise that God intended until Christ comes back to claim his own and take us to another world, I don't believe that the vexing problems that we face tonight are without a present solution. In fact, when Jesus came to live among men and show us a better way, he came for the purpose of untangling the web of sin. In John chapter 1 and verse 9, the scripture says that Jesus was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. And Jesus said in John 8 and verse 12, I am the light of the world, and he that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And so there is no need to stumble through the darkness of sin and of ignorance when Jesus came to illuminate our pathway. He not only came to be the light of the world, he is considered the good shepherd, our wonderful counselor, the mighty prince of peace. And I believe that Jesus is the answer to every single problem of man in every walk of life, in every age, in every culture. I don't believe that man can come to a crossroads or a decision in his life. And I don't believe that man can face an obstacle or man can face a tragedy in his life, that man can face any kind of a problem in his life that Jesus does not have the solution to. And that Jesus does not provide him with the principles and the guidance in order to safely and successfully navigate that that course at that time. Jeremiah reminded us in Jeremiah 10 and verse 23, O Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. And this simple and familiar verse really points to the folly of modern man and really man throughout the ages. Man tries to walk according to his own steps. He tries to solve his own problems. He tries to come up with his own solution and his own approach to the various problems that face him. But Jeremiah said it is not within us to provide such solutions. In fact, we really only run in circles in life and we only vex ourselves and we find ourselves in a state of endless frustration if we turn to within ourselves or we turn to the world or we turn to pop, uh, popular or public opinion or if we turn to the government or if we turn to anything else for the answers that we face within life. In fact, Isaiah in Isaiah 57 and verse 20 said, The wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt, and there is no peace, saith my God, unto the wicked. And it will always be that way. Man is really claiming that he's seeking the answers to all of the problems that face modern society and that face his own individual life. But I think that we can see tonight that man is refusing the one real solution to his problems, and that is the counsel of God. And Isaiah says they're like the sea, and the sea is never completely tranquil. The sea never rests. The sea is all the time turbulent and casting up its water and casting up the dirt from beneath. And so he says it will always be with the wicked man outside of Christ and apart from God. There will be no peace to his soul. There will be no solution unto his problems. 
Well, I want to talk to you tonight about how Jesus is the answer to all of our problems tonight. And I want to illustrate that to you in a number of, I hope, very timely ways. And I want to begin by saying that Jesus is the answer to all of our societal problems that seem so vexing, so overwhelming tonight. In fact, in 1968, a long time ago now, at the Republican National Convention, then-candidate for president Richard Nixon made the following statement as he accepted his party's nomination for president. He said, quote, when the strongest nation in the world can be tied down for years in a war in Vietnam with no hope in sight, when the richest nation in the world cannot manage its own economy, when a nation with the greatest tradition of the rule of law is plagued with unprecedented lawlessness, when a nation that has been known for a century of equal opportunity is torn by racial violence, and when the President of the United States cannot travel abroad or to any major city at home without fear of a hostile and violent demonstration, then it is time for new leadership in America." End quote. I suppose that just about any candidate since that time could stand and essentially make the same speech. And regardless of what your ideology or your own feelings or opinions might be tonight, I think we could really all agree with what is contained within that statement. And I think that we could probably also agree that what has happened over the last 40 years since Mr. Nixon made that statement has probably done very little to solve the problems that face our society. You think about it, if, if anything, we're worse off today than we were then. Our land is still torn asunder by hatred and crime and immorality and godlessness of every kind. In fact, the general climate of society has only grown worse, and I believe it will continue to grow worse as man stays on his present course. And I would echo the sentiment that we do need a change in leadership in America, and we have needed it for a long time. And you know we've been hearing that phrase a lot in the last few months. If you watch the news and follow politics, people say it's time for change, and we need change in Washington. Well, I agree with that tonight, and I'm not taking a political position because I'm not a political person, and I don't get involved in politics. But I can tell you that we do need change within this nation, and we need change of leadership within this country. But I can guarantee you that neither political candidate running for office or any candidate, no matter great or small, running for office would agree with what I mean by that statement, that we need a change of leadership in this country. We don't need merely a new man in the White House or a new man in Congress or a new man in the governor's office, but rather we need a whole new approach to solving our problems as mankind. It seems like over the last century especially, we have sought to improve the conditions of our land and our problems by uh, everything from education to spending massive amounts of money to all kinds of social and government programs. And at the same time, we have turned around as a society and have castigated the one who can be the real answer to our problems. We have totally removed him from our public life, and that is Jesus the Christ. Now, as I say, it is a political campaign season. It's an election year. And I don't know about you, but I'm just about tired of it by now. I'm tired of turning on the news and it just being a 24-hour news cycle of endless campaign speeches and people promising that they're going to do this and they're going to do that and they're going to do the other and why they have the better plan than the other person. Uh, but you know one thing for sure, that all of these candidates, one side or the other, they're going to make a list of promises so long you can hardly count them that will involve spending billions and now even trillions of dollars in order to implement those programs. And they all claim that they have the best approach and the best solution and the best program that's going to bring this country about uh, around and it's going to turn things around and make it a better place.
place to live in a more successful and prosperous and peaceful society. Well, I'm going to tell you something. You can make all the promises in the world. You can enact all the programs you want to enact. You can spend all of the billions of dollars that you want to spend, but society is not going to change. And we're not going to really solve the core problems of our society until we recognize and we respect the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I understand tonight that civil government is a distinct entity that is distinct from religion and distinct from the church. And I understand that God appoints men, uh, uh, worldly men, to serve in those particular positions in order that he might providentially execute his will in the world. And I believe that God sets up rulers and he takes them down, and I fully believe that tonight. And I believe that civil government plays a role within our lives. Civil authority keeps peace and order in our society, and it serves a vital function in our life as a group of people, as a community, and as a society. But I'm going to tell you our problems go far beyond what any government on the face of this earth can solve. In Revelation chapter 11 and verse 15, the Bible says that the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Now here John predicts a time in the future, from that vantage point that is, when the gospel message would be unfettered and extend its powerful influences into the far ends of the earth. Now this is not a premillennial prediction. It is not a premillennial proposition. But rather, and in fact, we should remember that the kingdom of God or the church of Jesus Christ is not a political organization and citizens of that higher and that better and that distinct kingdom do not entangle themselves in the affairs of state, but they do this. They serve as a leavening agent in the world by spreading the gospel, by spreading and disseminating the truth to the hearts of men. Now that's how we affect change in the world. Now, preachers today have turned their pulpits into political stumps and convention platforms, and some, of course, have even tried in recent years to propel themselves into the affairs of state by running for elected office. I don't believe that that's the commission of the church tonight. But rather, the church's sole responsibility is to preach the gospel. That's what we're here for. And by so doing, to fill the earth with the influence of heaven's kingdom. And I believe this is what the prophecy relayed by John is really talking about, that there was coming a time when the gospel was going to have free course and go into the world. And in that sense, Christ was going to have reign or dominion in the hearts of men. And because Christ would take up his reign in men's hearts, the world was going to be influenced through and by that. And I'll tell you that if men would listen to and heed and obey the gospel tonight, the world would immediately change. They, if they would heed the principles of the gospel, then we would live in a completely different society. Let me give you a few, of, uh, a few examples of some things that would immediately change. You know, we could solve a lot of the ramifications and consequences of moral sin if we would just simply stop the moral sin. But we're not living in a society that's about to do that. In fact, people find every way possible to justify any kind of a perverted and immoral moral and godless lifestyle that you can possibly imagine, and it only gets worse as time goes on. No one is standing up and saying that homosexuality is a sin, that homosexuality is an abomination against God, but they are saying that we need to solve the AIDS crisis. They're telling us that we need to stop the rampant spread of disease, and they believe the answer to that is to get into the schools across this country and teach our young people about safe ways to commit fornication and to commit evil in the sight of God. And they like to get in any kind 
kind of a venue or any kind of an educational channel they possibly can to influence young people with this idea that two men or two women can marry one another or can enjoy a relationship just like a man or a woman can. And our society is being saturated with that tonight. And if you don't believe that that's what our modern culture revolves around, if you don't believe that that's a big part of the impetus behind this entire liberal movement that we see in the world today, well, you're sadly deceived. You have your head in the sand because I'm going to tell you that's exactly what they're trying to get across. They're trying to take God and absolutely rip him out of this world. And they're trying to destroy the whole concept of there being a God who has authority morally and religiously over our lives and that man can do whatever he wants to do and whatever feels good. And the way they do that is to advance these agendas of humanism and, and godlessness and immorality. And that's exactly what's happening in our society on television. That's exactly what's happening in our government and in the courts across the land, and that's what's happening on your television every night when you turn it on. They're bombarding people with this subconscious message that homosexuality, fornication, adultery, divorce and remarriage, living together outside of marriage, promiscuity, that that's all a part of it, and that's just as acceptable as a normal relationship between one man and one woman for life. Well, I'm going to tell you it's not as normal. And over in Romans, the first chapter, the Apostle Paul in fact, indicted the Gentile world for some of those very sins. And he pointed to the fact that these people had become completely godless in their thinking. They had known God at one time, but they had completely removed God from their thinking. They refused to acknowledge him and to give him praise and glory, and they were not thankful unto him. And the result, according to Paul, was they became vain in their own imaginations. And the result, according to verse 26, was, For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men, working that which is unseemly, listen now, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meat. Now you know what that means? If you boil that down to common modern language, that means they got what was coming to them. They received the recompense of their reward. Now that may sound cruel and harsh, and that may sound not compassionate and uncaring, but you know you just have to face the fact of the matter that when science proves, that whenever history proves, whenever man's experience has proven that a particular kind of lifestyle or a particular type of behavior leads to a certain consequence and people go ahead and engage in that behavior or make that choice and they face that consequence, there's really only one person they can blame and that's when they look in the mirror. They can't blame the government for that. They can't blame their next door neighbor for that. They can't even blame what they watch on television for that. They can't blame anybody in the world for the mess that they make out of their life but themselves because they chose something other than the will of God. And Paul says they received in themselves the recompense of their reward. They got what they deserved. You know what the answer to our societal problems of immorality are tonight? It's one word, but it's a word nobody wants to hear, and that's the word repentance. It is a word that many pulpits across this land have fallen as silent as the tomb where it's concerned. And that is the word repentance. Religion today is all about feeling good. Religion today is all about getting a crowd and telling people they don't have to give up or change or stop doing anything. They can be what they are and come as they are and be what they are. But I'm going to tell you God's, God's word and God's message is still just as loud and clear and powerful as it ever was. Repent. And that's the answer to the world's problems tonight. But no one wants to do that. 
And Jesus, remember, indicted the people of his age by saying, they will not come to the light because they love darkness rather than light. Their deeds are evil, and they don't want the light to reprove their lives, and so they stop their ears, and they try to destroy the messenger. They try to remove any influence of God's word away from them. As a result, they continue to dwell in darkness, and that's the pitiful state of our land tonight. You know many of the economic problems that we face in our society? Jesus has an answer for them. And I'm not preaching politics tonight. And I don't believe tonight that America is, as people sometimes say, a Christian nation. Because I believe that word is a very exclusive word that doesn't envelop the governments of this land. I believe it's a nation like any other nation. But I will say that this nation was originally founded in some regards upon principles that you can read about and that you can learn from the Word of God. And as a result, our society prospered because when people follow the principles of God's Word, that only leads to good things within their life. God's Word contains wisdom. God's Word is, of course, its author is one who created man and knows what is best for man. And so why would God's ways and God's plans not be what's Why would they not work? We're drowning in a sea of debt today because there's a society of people out there who don't want to work and they think the world owes them a living. And God says something other than that. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 19, when God cursed man after he fell by transgression, he cursed the man, he cursed the woman, he cursed the serpent, and he said unto the man, But in the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. As long as man lives, there's a principle at work here. He has to work for what he eats. He has to work for what he gets. And God didn't forget that principle because Paul over in 2 Thessalonians, the third chapter, and verse 6, reminded the brethren there that the apostles had set an example before them of being willing to work with their own hands, lest there be those who were lazy and became busybodies and thought they could merely rely on everyone else to provide for them and to provide their living. Paul says, We command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly. What does it mean there? What is this sin of walking disorderly? He says, Not after the tradition which ye received of us. What tradition? He says, For yourselves know how ye ought to follow us, for we behave not ourselves disorderly among you. Neither did we eat any man's bread for naught, but wrought with labor and travail night and day that we might not be chargeable to any of you not because we have not power but to make ourselves an example unto you to follow us for even when we were with you this we commanded you that if any would not work neither should he eat. Paul said there were times that we rolled up our sleeves and we worked with our hands and we did so to prove to you that we were not eating your bread for naught. We proved to you that we would work and we set an example before you and I'm going to tell you something. Any preacher that's too lazy to get out if he needs to and get a job and work is not a good example for the church and he's not worth the salt that goes in his bread. Now I believe that a preacher has every right if he meets uh, the moral qualifications and the spiritual qualifications to be supported in a full-time way by the church to preach the gospel. I believe that's perfectly fine but there are times when a preacher simply is going to have to go out and find another way to provide for his family and if he does that he's to be commended. The world owes nobody a living. And listen, when you've got somebody in the church that will not go out and do an honest day's work for an honest day's pay. And I'm not talking about people that are honestly disabled. I'm not talking about people who are not able to go out and work as they once did. But when you have people who could but will not go out and do an honest day's work for an honest day's pay, 
Not only does the church not have an obligation to support them and to aid them, the church is wrong and is guilty of sin if it does. Paul said that this person needs to be withdrawn from. You withdraw yourself from that brother that walketh disorderly. You don't support him. You don't help him. You withdraw from him. And you let him know that that attitude and that behavior is unacceptable in the sight of God. Now, if you think that some politicians are unpopular with the American people and with the Congress because of the position that they take on things like welfare, you let the Apostle Paul get a hold of them. Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 8, If any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. Jesus has the answer to our problems if we would just listen to what Jesus says and live by his word. But people don't want to do that today. And no wonder we find ourselves in problems that seem impossible to solve. Number two, I want to switch gears here and say that Jesus is the answer to the problems that we face in the church tonight. He is the answer to problems that we face congregationally. Now, some people live under the illusion that the church will never have problems. They have this notion that the church is some sort of a utopia where no one will ever have any kind of conflict or disagreement, and that if that ever does happen, that something is really out of kelter, and, and they get all discouraged, and they throw up their hands in some cases, and even quit or remove themselves from the church or grow weak because they witness problems in the Lord's body. Well, I've got news for you tonight. Since the church was established on the day of Pentecost till today, there has never been an age of time that the church has not had trouble. There has never been a period of time where the church has never had problems. You just go right all the way back to the beginning and the church had problems over what to do with Gentiles. The church had great problems over that that were very divisive problems. And that's not to say that problems are to be desired. That's not to say that we're to try to create problems. But the fact of the matter is when you're dealing with fallible men, and when you're dealing with something as weighty as the human soul and an eternal soul, you're going, to have, uh, you're going to have disagreements and conflicts and emotions are going to run high and there are going to be problems within the church. So let us not be so naive tonight as to think that we will not encounter rough spots along the way. But I'm going to tell you this, the Lord has the answer to work them out. And the problem that I see in the church today is not that we have problems, but that we try to do everything in the world besides what the Lord says to solve those problems. And instead of solving those problems, we make them worse. We compound them. We frustrate ourselves in trying to work out those problems. We try to apply our psychological approaches to working out differences and problems between brethren. And sometimes we just outright ignore what the Bible says to do about it. Now, I believe that there are at least two ingredients that are essential for the church to grow and remain in the will of God. One of them is sound leadership in every church. And if we have a dearth of anything in the brotherhood today, it is a dearth of good, solid, knowledgeable leadership in the church. I go to too many places today where there is absolutely a vacuum. There are no reliable leaders in that congregation. Some brethren's idea of being a leader of the church is lining up services before they start and making sure there's a summer meeting book and make sure to, uh, make, making sure the light bill gets paid on time every month. Well, that's all important and that's a part of it, but leadership's a lot more than that. And you can have all of the business meetings in the world and you can take all the votes in the world on every issue that you want to take and you have all the meetings you want to have. But I'm going to tell you it boils down to the fact that there have got to be some men in every congregation who know the Bible and who have the backbone to stand up for the Bible. 
There has to be men who care about the souls of those who are in that congregation and who watch for the souls of people in that congregation, who are aware of problems that confront the church and face the church, and who are guarding the souls of those who may need protection and who may need to be strengthened in the faith. And we're lacking that in so many places. Let me tell you, I've not been preaching that long. I'm not that old of a person, of course. But uh, I can tell you I've seen a difference in just 10 or 15 years. When I first started preaching the gospel, and I went to some of those old churches, for example, down in the deep south where I live now, you would go to some of those old churches, and I'm going to tell you there were some old men who were leaders in those congregations, and they planted themselves right on the front row of those church buildings, and when you got up to preach, believe me, it was intimidating because you were preaching to some men who knew the Bible. And whenever you got in their homes after services or throughout that meeting, you knew that you were going to have some Bible conversations. You knew that they were going to ask you about what you preached. And you knew that if you dared step out of line and preach something that was questionable or wrong, there were going to be some brethren who were going to line up at the back and they were going to call you on the carpet about it and they were going to straighten you out. And I'm convinced we have a lot of churches today where you could nearly get up and say the sky is green and the grass is purple and say anything in the world you want to say. And people come by and shake your hand and say, wonderful message. We need sound leadership in the church tonight. We need men who study the Bible and who care about the church, who have the backbone to confront problems that arise within the church. We need leaders and we need teachers who offer the church a well-balanced diet of edification, who address the needs of the congregation and what they teach. And many places just aren't getting that tonight. They're not getting the kind of teaching they need to hear. They're not getting any substance in their teaching. Because sometimes, sadly, the men who get up in the pulpit don't know any more about the Bible than the people they're trying to teach. And that's a problem. And we could solve a lot of the problems that we have if men, instead of just being concerned about getting their way, and men being concerned about having the preeminence in the church, had a real love and care about the church, and men had a knowledge of the Bible and know how to apply that knowledge, we could solve a lot of our difficulties. Now, in the same vein, I want to say that every church needs discipline. Now, we don't like to talk about discipline. And discipline really sounds kind of like an ugly and a harsh word to us. And when we think about discipline, we think about immediately disfellowshipping someone. Well, that's not necessarily what I'm talking about when I talk about discipline. In fact, really, there are two kinds of discipline. And both of them the church desperately needs. One of them is instructive discipline. And discipline does not necessarily have to be uh, it doesn't have to be what we think of as negative. It doesn't have to be harsh. And certainly our preaching should never be rude or hateful or condescending. But you know, every time a faithful man gets in the pulpit and preaches a gospel sermon and tells me something that is needful for my soul, I am receiving discipline. When a brother tells me that I am doing something that is wrong or that poses a danger to my soul... I'm receiving discipline. And every person in the church, every child of God needs discipline in their life just as much as every child in your or any other home needs discipline. And just as you see the results in the life of a child that goes without discipline and is allowed to run amok and do simply whatever they want to do and they're never told not to do anything, they're never disciplined or chastised for doing what is wrong, just as we see the result of that in too many homes, we see the result of that in too many churches. 
There are places where leaders don't want a lot of things talked about because they're afraid it's going to make somebody mad and it's going to run somebody off and it's going to diminish the size of the crowd and it's going to quench and throw a bucket of cold water on the excitement they think they have in the congregation. Well, listen now. The Lord's not concerned about having a building full of people. The Lord's concerned about having a building full of converted people. The Lord's concerned about saving people's souls and taking them to heaven. And that involves telling people what they need to know, and sometimes that's not popular. Sometimes that doesn't set very well with them, but it's needful. And we desperately need instructive discipline. I know some congregations, if they refuse the kind of preaching they need to hear, they won't call a preacher that's going to get up and preach on things. They're not going to call a preacher who's going to get up and lay it on, lay it on the line. They're not going to call a preacher, as some of the old-timers used to say, that's going to shell it down and show the cob because that kind of preaching is not popular today. And you know they end up paying the price for that. Because in some places that I'm aware of, they allow things to run amok and they allow things to grow weak. And it gets to the point that even the leaders of that church realize that it's getting out of hand and it's going too far, and all of a sudden they try to put the brakes on it, and they don't know what to do about it. Well, you know what? They should have done something a long time ago. They should have been disciplining the church all along by teaching what the church needed to hear and informing and educating the membership of their congregation. Now, sometimes, unfortunately, it proceeds to the point that we need corrective discipline. Corrective discipline. And this is a misunderstood thing because many times people think of corrective discipline as a weapon that's used in retaliation or that corrective discipline is some form of punishment for people. And because we have that kind of mindset about discipline, we tend to try to avoid it and we tend to uh, fail to execute it when sometimes it's necessary. But I believe that's the Lord's will for every church to deal with problems, some problems that arise by using corrective discipline. You know, over there in 1 Corinthians 5, we're aware of that situation that Paul addressed at Corinth. He said that there was a man in that congregation that had his father's wife. And he said that this was a sin that was so dark and so heinous that it was not even named among the Gentiles. And Paul says you ought to be ashamed of it. Paul says you ought to mourn over it, but instead you're puffed up over it. I don't think this means that the Corinthians were going around bragging about the fact that they had a man living in an incestuous relationship. But what I do think it means is that these people were looking the other way and they were acting as though all was well and they were proud of themselves as a congregation and of their spiritual progress and their spiritual condition when really that wasn't the case in the eyes of God. Paul says they should have been mourning. They should have been deeply grieved and concerned about the sin of this man and so grieved about it that they do something to try to save his soul. And Paul says, in order to save his soul, if this man won't repent, Paul said, you don't eat with him. You withdraw from him. And that doesn't mean you just don't call on him to lead a song. Paul says, you don't eat with such a one. And Paul gives two reasons. Paul says, you don't eat with such a one, first of all, so that perchance they might be saved. That is, deliver them over to Satan, so that perchance in the end their soul might be saved. Now, I've known of situations where someone went astray and became guilty of some terrible sin and where brethren scripturally and in the right motive in love and concern for that brother, they enacted the kind of discipline that the Bible teaches needed to be enacted. They followed the Bible's instructions and it may have taken a while, but I've known of cases where those brethren finally came back to the Lord and they straightened up their life. 
Because seeing that they were not in fellowship with God's people, finally got the message across to them, they were not in fellowship with God. But I can't exactly recall a situation where someone was living in an immoral life and just suddenly said, well, you know, everybody down there has just been so tolerant and so accepting of me, I think I need to give up this lifestyle. I think I need to quit doing what I've been doing. It doesn't work that way. Jesus has the answer. And if we would listen to Jesus' prescription for the disease, we could heal the disease. It really boils down to the fact that we need a real revival, not only in plain old-time gospel preaching, but at times we need to have the courage and we need to have, yes, the love for those souls who stand in jeopardy of being lost to do what the Bible says. That's not only true of the immoral man, it's true of the false teacher. Paul said in Titus 1 and 10, There are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped. Now how do you stop their mouths? You certainly don't call them to preach. You don't give them a platform to teach other people. He says they subvert whole houses, teaching things which they ought not. In other words, they go from family to family and from house to house and from person to person spreading their doctrine. Paul said their mouths must be stopped. They must be marked. They must be avoided. People must know to avoid them and the danger that their doctrine poses. Wherefore, rebuke them sharply, Paul says, that they may be sound in the faith. Titus 3 and 10, a man that is an heretic after the first and second admonition reject, knowing that he that is such subverteth and sinneth, being condemned of himself. Romans 16 and 17, I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them, for they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ but their own belly, and by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 11. Listen now. Paul says, But now I have written unto you not to keep company. If any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner with such and one know not to eat. Do you know it's wrong to rail against your brethren? It is so wrong that the Apostle Paul says when one is guilty of it, you withdraw from him and you don't eat with him. I one time worked in an area and there was a congregation that was afflicted by a railer. There was a man in that congregation that had ruled that church by his temper for years. He would have outbursts in the services of the church even. He would oftentimes berate the brethren, the man who taught, the man who waited on the table, the man that led a song at the back door of the church building. And this man had divided congregations in his area where he lived because of the fact that he would often go about and make false accusations and rail against his own brethren. Well, you know what finally came to a head in one of these congregations? And some of the brethren left that church. And they went down the road to another church because they were tired of putting up with it. Well, the next thing I knew, these people were calling the other churches in the area and they were saying, now we hope you're not going to call on that man because we won't come to your meeting if you're going to call on him. And that just didn't sit exactly right with me. And I told one of those brethren that called me one day, until you're willing to do what the Bible says to do about that, because after all, this man was under your jurisdiction. He was a member of your congregation. And until you're willing to do what the Bible says to deal with him, you have no right to call up to this other congregation and tell them what to do about him. And you see, it took a problem that should have been reserved to one local congregation and it spread it to multiple congregations in an area and it became and still is a big mess. That's because we don't listen to Christ. 
and we make a bigger mess instead of solving our problems. I got to hurry. I believe that Jesus as well is the answer to confusion in religion. Many people think that Christ instituted the thousands of churches that exist in the world. And they'll even thank God in their prayers for all of the denominations that exist. The problem with that is, according to 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 33, God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. Now you know if you're confused tonight, you're not alone. If you're confused as you look out over the landscape of religion and you're searching for the truth and you don't know hardly where to begin, and you don't know who's, tell, who's saying what as opposed to somebody else and who's right as opposed to who's wrong, you're not alone. You're in the same boat with millions upon millions of people who have turned away tonight from Christianity because of the fact that there are so many churches and denominations that all claim to be the Lord's. But you know Jesus has the answer to that confusion. Jesus said in Luke 8 and verse 10, Unto you it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to others in parables, that seeing they might not see, and hearing they might not understand. The parable is this, the seed is the word of God. You know that's the answer right there. The seed is the word of God. Now, there are a lot of things in life, morally and spiritually and otherwise, that revolve around this little thing that we call the seed principle. And we all understand the seed principle, that is, that you can take a seed of a particular variety and you can plant it in the earth, and that in time when that seed germinates and springs up and it brings forth fruit, that that kind of fruit is going to be according to the seed that you sow. In other words, you're not going to go out and plant a seed of corn and go out later in the year and find wheat. You're not going to set out a tomato vine and then go out a few months later and pick watermelons off of that vine or squash or something else. And you're certainly not going to see some sort of a strange plant that has a tomato on one vine, a watermelon on another, a squash on another, and something else on another. We know that when you plant one kind of seed, one plant is going to come from that, and that plant is going to bear a specific type of fruit, nothing more and nothing less, nothing different. Jesus said the seed of the kingdom is the word of God. Now all things were created miraculously, but they are sustained, sustained through that natural principle. When God created all living things at the time of the creation, He did so by miracle. He did not put a seed in the barren earth, but rather Jesus, or rather God, planted a full-grown tree. When He made man, He did not begin with an embryo, but rather God had a full a full-grown man fashioned out of the dust of the earth. He created Eve out of a rib that he took out of the side of man. That was a miracle. But within every living thing and every species, he placed the seed of reproduction. And that seed forever sustains and propagates that particular species. Well, when the church was established, it was established by miracle. On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit filled the apostles, and they began by inspiration, as we talked about last night, to herald the gospel and to reveal unto the saints the faith that would once and for all be delivered. And therefore the seed was placed within that new and that miraculously created organism. That seed of reproduction being the word of God that was inspired, when it is taken and it is sown in other hearts, when it is taken even across or around this world, across the sea, and when it even spans generations of time, and ages and cultures, and that seed is planted in the sea, in the heart of men, in the fertile heart of man. If it grows, it's going to produce one thing, and that is that which it came from. And that tells me that if a person simply takes the Bible and simply reads and understands and obeys what the Bible teaches him to do, then he's going to be one thing and one thing only. And that is a New Testament Christian. 
He's not going to be a Christian of one kind of a variety or another. He's simply going to be a Christian. He's going to be what they were back there. Now, why you have so many churches in the world tonight is because people do something besides what the Bible says. Because they're guided by their creeds, by their catechisms, by their confessions of faith, by their traditions, by their prejudices, and not by the simple teaching of the Word of God. And so again, I say Jesus is the answer to confusion and division that exists in religion tonight. Number four, Jesus is the answer to broken homes. And do we ever need an answer to this real problem in our world tonight? Half of all marriages, in fact more, statistics now show us in this country that more than half of all marriages end in divorce. It's hard, it's hard to go a day without meeting somebody who hasn't been divorced and remarried and often multiple times. And it's hard to go to a congregation anymore where there are not people who have been divorced and remarried. I hear of marriages in the church that are on the rocks or ended in divorce. And sometimes those divorces are justified, unfortunately, and sometimes they're not. But I can tell you that regardless of the circumstances that precipitated those divorces, whatever the reason behind them, the fact that it came to that point is a blight on this country and it is a blight on the people of God. I feel sorry for children that grow up in homes today that they don't even know who their moms and dads are. And they talk about their stepmothers and their stepfathers, and sometimes it's so mixed up and so convoluted, you can't unravel it and neither can they. But when you set aside God's arrangements, trouble ends up being the result. Now over in Ephesians 5 and 6, you have a very simple and ancient pattern for the home that God designed. And when God created the home, which He did in the Garden of Eden, He had a design for it. The problem is society isn't very interested in that design. And unfortunately, some in the church aren't very interested in that plan or that design. Paul states in Ephesians chapter 5 that the relationship that a man has to his wife is the same as Christ has to the church. And that just as Christ is the head of the church, so is the husband to be the head of his wife and the head of his home. And that the wife is to submit unto her husband just as Christ, or just as the church does unto Christ. This harkens to the principle that the Apostle Paul set forth in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 3 when he told us that the head of every man is Christ, that the head of Christ is God, and that the head of woman is the man. Now, I don't know of anything I could get on television tonight and say that would be more unpopular or get any more hate mail than that right there. You could read 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 3 on the average street corner in this country and somebody's going to mob you because that's completely out of date. That's sexist, you know. But the fact of the matter is, God says that the husband is to be the head of his home and the wife is to submit herself unto the husband. And I don't have time tonight to go into all of what that means and to, and to qualify that by saying uh, that uh, that does not give the husband the right to rule over his wife in a way unlike Christ does over his church and to treat her in a way that is not right. That's not what I'm talking about tonight, and that's not what the Bible's talking about tonight. The Bible is talking about the fact that the man is in a position of spiritual leadership within his house and that the woman is subordinate to that. And in Ephesians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul taught that children are to obey their parents in the Lord and they're to honor their father and their mother. You certainly don't see much of that today because children are allowed to do whatever in the world they want to do. And if they don't like what their parents do or how their parents raise them, why in some cases they can just go down to court and sue their parents. 
Some children just take a gun and they shoot their parents. They don't have respect for their parents. They don't love their parents. They're not taught to love their parents. They're simply left to themselves from the earliest of ages. And a simple Bible home after the Bible pattern is a rare sight today. We need homes where fathers are the God-fearing leaders they're supposed to be. We need homes where wives and mothers place their responsibility to the home above everything else. We need homes where children are made to love their parents and respect authority because that lesson that they learn early in life will carry them all through life when they must respect the authority of others. We need homes where children are taught the Bible and they're taught how to pray. That's the kind of home Timothy was raised in because Paul said in 2 Timothy 1 and 5, When I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice, and I am persuaded that in thee also. That's a wonderful thing. That's a wonderful blessing, my friend, if you were raised in a home like that. And some of us may take it for granted, but if you grew up in a Christian home, where you had a mother and a father who took you to church, and you had a mother and father who taught you the Bible, and taught you how to live the right kind of life, and put Christ first and made him preeminent in all things, you are a very rare and a very blessed individual tonight. And a lot of people don't know that. A lot of people have never experienced that. Henry Grady was the prolific author and historian and newspaper journalist in Atlanta, Georgia. He wrote for the Atlanta Constitution Journal. And he became a very famous and prominent wealthy man. And as he began to enjoy the success that life brought to him, he find, found himself moving away from his early childhood roots and get, getting caught up in all of the lights and the glamour and the glitter of the world. One day he told his staff at the newspaper that he was going to take a trip out into the country to see his mother and he would return in just a couple of days. And he packed his bag and he made his way out, way out into the country to a humble little home where his elderly mother still lived. He told his mother, he said, Mother, I have come home because I want to spend the night here with you and I want you, Mother, to do what you used to do. I want you before we go to bed tonight to take down the Bible and I want you to read it to me. And I want you to pray for me. And that night that happened. His mother pulled down the tattered old family Bible that he had been read from or read to from as a child and she read several verses and chapters in fact from God's Word. And They knelt down and she led a very heartfelt and sincere prayer for her son. She took him up to the little room where he grew up and she tucked him in that little bed just like he were still a little boy. And he went home that next day and claimed that he had experienced an awakening of his faith and a real revival of his faith and his life was changed by that night. On another occasion, he happened upon a little mountain home as he was traveling back from Washington, D.C. And this family invited him to come in and spend the night with them. And he was impressed because before the family went to bed, after they had enjoyed a wonderful supper, the family gathered in front of the hearth in the living room and the father pulled down the family Bible and they read and they studied the scriptures together. And they prayed and they went to bed. And the next morning they got up and they did the same thing before they went about their activities for the day. And Henry Grady, Grady continued his journey on home from the nation's capital. And when he got back, he wrote his column about his trip. And he said, I have now determined that the capital of the United States of America is not in Washington, D.C. 
It's in every home that is spread across the length and breadth and width of this great nation. And so it is tonight. The unfortunate thing is there are millions of children in this world that don't know anything about a home like that. All they know is a home where the only time the name of God is used is in an oath. The only time they ever hear Jesus is when somebody is mad or angry. They've never had anybody read the Bible to them. They've never been taken to church. They don't know anything about that tonight. And if you're denying your children that kind of upbringing, oh, you may say, we're a Christian home, we're a Christian family, we're members of the church. That's not what I'm talking about tonight. If you're denying your children the kind of raising where Christ comes first in their life, you're cheating them. You're cheating the church. And you're cheating the world. I grew up in a home, and it wasn't a perfect home, but it was a Christian home. And one of the things that I will always remember as long as I live about my childhood, and specifically about my mother, I don't guess there was a single morning of my childhood that I didn't get up and get ready to go to school, but that during that time she would not be sitting in the living room in her chair with a Bible open across her lap and a notebook out taking notes as she studied for herself the Word of God. That made an impression on me. It taught me that the Bible is important. And when I was growing up, I can tell you that there wasn't a service of the Lord's Church unless we were sick that we didn't attend. When there was a gospel meeting, we were going to be there. We were going to be there every night. On Wednesday night, Dad would get home from a hard day at work, and he would be as tired having worked himself to a standstill but we loaded up in the car and we drove to church. And that made a profound influence on me as it did many of you because you grew up in a home like that. And the world needs more homes like that. Jesus is the answer to the broken homes that we have in our land tonight. If we would go back to Bible principles for the home. The lesson's yours tonight and I preach a little long, but maybe there's someone here who's outside of Christ Maybe your life is in disarray. Maybe you have a lot of problems and a lot of questions tonight that you're just having a hard time finding the answers to. And you're facing some crises and you're facing some problems maybe of your, very own of your very own design that you don't know how to get out of. You just don't know which way to turn. You know over there in Jeremiah, I believe it's the 18th chapter, there's a beautiful passage where God talks about the nation of Israel and their broken state. And he tells the prophet to go down to the potter's house. And God was going to show him something there. And he said that there in that house he saw the potter take a vessel, a broken vessel, and mold it and put it up on the wheel. And as the wheel turned and so forth, the vessel was flawed. It was marred. And so God put it back on the wheel and he made it again. And you know, that's what the Lord could do with your life tonight. And that's what the Lord wants to do with your life, just like he did Israel back long ago. No matter how many pieces it may be shattered into. He wants to take those broken pieces and he can put them on the transforming wheel of his spirit, of his word, and he can mold and shape them into a beautiful vessel that you never thought possible. So why don't you turn it over to him tonight? Repent of your sinful living. Put your faith and your trust in him. Confess his name before this audience and we'll baptize you this hour for the remission of sins and you'll be a new creature in Christ and a new page on which to write the land of beginning again as we sometimes call it.
We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.